0: So last week we looked at the role of deacon uh, and we looked at that list of what the qualification for deacon is and tonight we move to uh, elders. The two primary spiritual leaders of a congregation are, are the elders who are called overseers or pastors in the New Testament and the deacons. And so elders' job as laid out in Ephesians 4, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 1 and Hebrews 13 is to preach the Word, shepherd the souls of those under their care. Deacons have a very crucial role in the life of the church, but their role is different than that of elders. As we talked about last week, the biblical role of deacon is to take care of the physical and logistical needs of the church so that the elders can concentrate on their primary calling. Last week we looked at Acts 6, 1 through 6, and just like the apostles were called to be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the Word, this is the same division that is set out in the church today. That the role of the elders is to shepherd, be the primary decision makers, um, and to, to oversee the flock. The role of the deacons is to, to take the responsibility of the day-to-day operations off of the elders so they can focus on what they need to be focused on. Today in staff meeting, we were, we were talking about the reality that oftentimes in church life, the way the devil tempts a church body is not to necessarily do something bad. The devil's number one temptation is to abandon what God has called us to do for stuff that's good. Because if we do good stuff instead of the bad stuff, we failed all the same. And there are a myriad of things that we could do, but we have to ask ourselves, and the elders have to ask: Is that what the church is called to do? The example that I used from the pulpit a few months ago was: We had a young man that came to the church. He seemed like a very nice person. He seemed very sincere. He asked if uh, he first asked if he could talk to me about planting a garden back in the that back section, and I. I didn't have a problem with that. I knew it was going to be all rocky, but you know, if you want to plant a garden, I, I don't have a problem with that. It was an organic garden. And then he came, and when he met with me, he had this whole big plan about on Sunday mornings he wanted to take the kids from Sunday school and teach them how to do organic gardening. And I'm like, well, that's not the job of the church. Because if these kids live their whole lives and don't know how to garden and they die, that's not going to affect their e- eternity. But if we let them come, go out of the doors of this church and we haven't taught them about Jesus Christ resurrected, we failed and we will give an account. In fact, I had a professor at seminary that called a lot of the programs that we do in churches air conditioning the bus to hell. All we're doing is making people comfortable in this life as they go to hell. Our primary task in the eyes of the world or out to the world outside of the walls of this church is to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. It doesn't mean that we don't have missions of mercy. It doesn't mean that we don't help people in other areas. But it means that that's not our primary task. And so God has put shepherds in place whose job it is to make sure that theologically, ministerially, that we stay on the track that God has called us to be on. Whereas the deacons, as we talked about last week, their primary task is to make sure that the day-to-day operations of this church happen. And there's a lot that goes on for just the stuff that happens. I think most people uh, at North Lincoln would be amazed at just the day-to-day stuff that has to go on. <clears throat> we have here, the insurance just came back with their e- estimates, it's a $7 million facility. And it would be very easy for, for me and the elders of this church just to become facility managers. And just keep up with the air conditioning and the carpet. And, the, and, and somebody needs to do that. This is a gift that God has given us that we need to take care of. But if we keep this place absolutely pristine and don't proclaim the gospel, we failed. I remember very well, the, one of the first churches that I... I, it was, I, wasn't even, I was a deacon in the church. Um, and they had uh, very nice facilities... Um, it was a smaller church. I would say on Sunday morning they may have had a hundred people there, and they had a fantastic gym. I mean, this thing was hardwood. It had in the center of it. It had the church's name, and it was beautiful. And it was an idol in that church. If you walked on that floor, it was somebody was going to get mad. What good is it to have a beautiful gym if nobody ever walks on it? And so I begged them to let me on Thursday nights open the doors and have, let men come in and just play basketball. And, and the rule was you can't cuss or you'll get thrown out. And at the end of, of we was, they were just, it was just pick up, five on five games. And at the end, I wanted to, to do a devotion. And it was like pulling teeth to get them to do that. And when they finally agreed to do it, I had two or three deacons that would come and sit around and watch and just be, they're scuffing up the floors. So who cares if we've got nice facilities? I pray that everything that we've got in this building gets wore out. We don't need a museum. What we need is a mission. So the deacon's job is to make sure that the day-to-day things happen. Now that doesn't mean that deacons aren't allowed to make any decisions because that's illogical. If the the first deacons came from the fact that there was a, a, a argument coming up between the Hellenistic widows and the Jewish widows about how they were getting served. Clearly, if these uh, seven men are told to go take care of this issue, they had to make decisions there. And I've had people come and say, the deacons in this church are... are, are ones who are, they're running everything. And this, you know, this person over here, he's all do, running this. Well, that's illogical for, for us to try to micromanage people. The issue is that the elders are supposed to cast the vision of what the church does, the direction of what the, what the church does, and the deacons are supposed to make sure that it actually happens. So if the, we decide that we're going to do an event like we did Sunday night, uh, I thought Sunday night was an amazingly cool event. We had the kids up there and we had the had people here? The gospel was put out. Well, somebody had to come set up tables. Somebody had to put tablecloths on it. Somebody had to make sure that the desserts back there were cut. Somebody had to make sure that after it was over that it was cleaned up. And our, our deacons are the ones who are supposed to be doing that day-to-day operation, and the deaconesses, the deacons' wives. So, the division of labor is similar to what we see, as we said, in the Book of Acts. Like the apostles, the elders' primary role is one of preaching the Word of God. And I would say to make sure that the elders of this church, primary task is to make sure that everything that we do in this church is being done in a godly, biblical fashion. The example that I always give is is we have a discussion about what kind of carpet to put down. It's not the elders' place to come in and say, we're going to put down this carpet. Because that's... a job for the membership to decide. It's our job to make sure that as we're having that discussion, we're not acting like idiots about it. No, it's being done in a godly, biblical, God-honoring way. So, and if you want to turn, you can, to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. Uh, we see the, requ- the basic requirements of an elder laid out. It's very similar to what we saw last week with the deacon. In fact, Quite a few of them are exactly the same. But the elders we know is a few things. Number one, he meets the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 1 through 7 and Titus 1 through 6, or 1 6 through 9. If a person does not meet those biblical qualifications, they should not be an elder. Number two, that they're recognized by the congregation as an elder. I, the way that I've always thought of it is there's an inward call and an outward call. There's an inward call, that that, and we'll talk about that as we look for, at the qualifications, the person desires the office. If their mama called or there's somebody that, that we convinced to do it, that's never going to work. But also that the congregation recognizes that that person meets these qualifications and is someone who can lead. Which is why we, as a church, vote. And number three, they lead the congregation by teaching the word, First Timothy three two, praying for the sheep, James five fourteen, and then overseeing the affairs of the church. All right, so let's look at what those requirements are. In First Timothy chapter three, uh, the first one is if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which is just another translation for elder. He desires a noble task. Uh, King James said if he desires. So the very first requirement of an elder is that he wants the job. Nobody should be forced to step into the role. I can tell you that as as an elder, if you're not called to do it, this job will kill you. Um, I know that where my calling comes from. I would say about once a month... I will get an anonymous letter telling me how horrible I am at doing my job. I regularly will get texts from people that want to complain about things, and if I allowed those things to affect me personally and didn't realize that I'm trying to do what God is calling me to do, that would be crushing. But because I know that God didn't leave me ignorant to what I'm supposed to do in my job, so if somebody says, well, you stink at preaching. Uh, I, 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 Garrett, the other day, I, I'm trying to teach Garrett and bring him along so that soon we could, could ordain him as an elder. And I showed him two of those anonymous letters, and I got it about a month apart. One of them said, You can't preach that when you stand up and speak, you use too many big words. We don't even know what you're saying. Um, and so uh, you should should not preach that way. And then the, this letter, written by a different person, said that the people of God in this church are starving for God's Word because you're not preaching the Bible enough. And so so if I sit those two letters side by side, I go, I guess I'm hitting the middle then. Because this person says I'm doing it too much, and this person says I'm doing not enough, so bam, I got it. (laughs) So it's it's got to be something you want to do. There's a lot of preachers that are mama-called preachers, and they're miserable. There's a lot of elders who this isn't what God has called them to do, and they're crushed under the weight of the responsibility, their criticisms. Some people are crushed under the weight of praise. Because, like I've said, just about everywhere I go, oh, this is the preacher. It it seems like it's, uh, it's either that means that people stop cussing or they cuss more. I'm not real sure why that is, but that's always the case. So the first one is they want to do it, and that's an important one. The second one is they have to be above reproach. If I'm somebody that in this community people say, well, he's a drunk or he's, he's a womanizer. Or he, There's something about my character. Now, it doesn't mean that I have to be perfect, thank, thankfully, or nobody could be an elder. But it has to be a situation where no one can bring a legitimate charge against you. Two years ago, I helped... Uh, Coach Davis with Glencoe and at least five or six times on the sideline I had to stop take a deep breath and say more people are watching me think of me as the preacher at North Glencoe than they do as a coach on Glencoe sideline so the best thing you can do Tom Harrison is shut your mouth and stand here with your hands in your pocket because me getting all out in a referee's face going bah! is not going to, A, help the team, because we all know that never does anything of value, and B, it's going to make me look like an idiot. And so we have to be careful of that. I tell the staff here all the time, and we've t- talked about an elders meeting, you don't have a personal Facebook account. And so I, t- I especially tell the staff, I don't, if you're a raving Republican or a raving Democrat, I don't want to read your Facebook and know which it is, because that undermines the gospel. When people hear us talk, they need to hear... Christ risen, not he's a pro-Trump guy or he's an anti-Trump guy. When I'm out in a restaurant, I always tip 20%. I don't care how bad the service is. I used to be the guy that would start out at 20% and every, in my mind, as my waiter or waitress did something wrong, I'd be like, well, that, she lost a dollar. <laughs> and then we would work our way down. But now I know if the the woman comes and pours tea in my lap, if I don't leave at least 20% when I leave, people are going to say, that preacher is a schmuck. He didn't leave me a tip. And that's going to run around. And so that should, it, it doesn't, above reproach means that we work hard to make sure that when people look at our lives, they have a hard time finding something they can point their finger at. Now there are some things, if we are true to the gospel, that people are going to get angry about. Uh, very recently, I had someone who said that I was inflexible uh, on the, the subject of of gay marriage, LGBT, and all that. and I didn 't say a word, but I said absolutely there's anything that the Bible clearly speaks to i 'm inflexible about. I, a few years ago, there was a guy on a television show that refer, was referring to John MacArthur and called him a scripture shackled rube. And I thought, what a great thing to be accused of. He is so shackled to Scripture, he doesn't have his own thoughts. And I was like, man, oh to God that someday I'm accused of that. So above reproach means that nobody can throw a legitimate charge. The husband of one wife. Again, the exact same language is used here as used of a deacon. And that literally means a one woman man. And as we said last week, I do not believe that we can reduce that down to just a person's never been divorced. It means that to be an elder in the church, that man and that woman have to be madly in love with each other, and nobody should have a doubt of it. I would even go so far as to say in my own life, uh, I go out of my way. In fact, I was talking to my uh, 14-year-old daughter um, about her phone. She, uh, our rule in our house is... Um, if I walk up to you and say, let me see your phone, and it's not given to me immediately, that phone goes into the yard. And so uh, we were looking at her phone, and she'd been texting back and forth with a little boy, and we were reading it, and she got all sideways. You just don't trust me. And I said, A, absolutely, I don't trust you, because I've been, I've been 14. So you could just move past that, because I'm never going to trust you. And put the, hold that on one side. B, I definitely don't trust any of the other little boys who are running around because I've been a 14-year-old boy, and I know what's going through their mind. And C, you know what? I don't trust me. Every week, I told her, every week, your mother gets a report of everywhere where I go on the Internet because you never outgrow that. And I want my wife to know... That she can trust me. And so we actually have what's called family share or something where all of us as a family can see where the other person is. If Ann wants to right now and look, where's Tom? Well, Guaranteed, 90% of the time, if she wants to know where I am, I'm right here in this building somewhere. Um, but the other 10% of the time, if she wants to know where I am, she should be able to look. She, other than Christ, is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I don't know how men who are in ministry who aren't one-woman men can survive ministry because she's the person that I can go to and gripe, and she loves you guys just as much as I do, so it's not going to be like I'm defaming anybody. If I go in and say, oh my gosh, I'm ready to strangle Don Smith. Shut up. She knows Don, and she loves him and prays for him just as much as I do so she can let me vent. When I come in and i 've had a rough, long period of time, like right now we 're in the month of December, Sunday I was here for seventeen hours, Monday, I was here for fourteen hours because we had uh, we had the the policeman's thing that went up here, and then yesterday, I had to hang out with all these old goats and so last night, and then after I got back from them i had had to, uh, to prepare to preach because whether I like it or not sunday's going to come, and then it's seven o'clock from seven to eight thirty i i had I got to coach. Uh, the 11U girls basketball team. And so I got home at 8 o'clock and she knew, because she knows what's going on in my life, that I was tired and I needed the kids to be shooed away and that I just needed some time because she is in ministry with me. And that's the plan, just like we talked about last week with deaconesses. I don't think that, a, that the elders wives are, or elderesses, I don't think that, that, that they're necessarily part of the decision making, but they're a desperately needed aspect of the ministry. And if an elder is not a one-woman man, he's not going to survive. We need our wives. (sighs) Sober-minded. He's not somebody who goes off half-cocked over everything that comes down the primrose path. Again, as I'm teaching Garrett right now, I just mapped out how in 1982... Etowah County's spiritual health was in this particular place. And then what you had was you had this church fad that came in called uh, Purpose Driven. And what it did was it pulled people from those smaller to medium-sized churches because there was this fad going on and that was a cool, hip, sexy thing to do. And so people left the church that was in their neighborhood. They left the church and they went to the place that that had Purpose. And then in Etowah County, we all know that primarily was cross point. And I'm not picking on any churches. I do this. Please don't think that I am. I grew up at White's Chapel uh, and uh, Philip Ellen had as much to say about the man that I am today as anybody. But that model was broken in that it pulled people away from church families. And then when that model collapsed and you had about... At one time, they were running two services of about 900 people. You had 2,000 people that were scattered. How many of those do you think went back to Cherry Street, Stowers Hill? Not many. Half of them went to the next newest hip, sexy thing that was going on, and the other half are sitting at home right now. Because that model meant big numbers are the the issue. How many numbers do we have? What's their offering this week? It wasn't about people. That model, in fact, was designed. If, and, and don't listen to me. You can go get a purpose-driven church and read it. You on purpose cut your older membership off so that they're not in a position of leadership because you don't want their input. And you labeled people like money bags and p- people like the whiners and, and you labeled people so that you could grow your church and appear like there were no problems and that doesn't last And so that was the cool, hip, sexy thing. And then when it went south and scattered, it just abandoned people who had that happened 20 years before would have still, if something bad had happened in the church, it would have been a church family in their neighborhood that they would have grown up in. And that church could have rallied around that circumstance. But the enemy was smart in that he fractured the community. In that time period, we had around 100 churches in the EBA. It's just Baptists. Now we have 78 churches, 75%, three-quarters of those churches are right now in a critical state, which means that if something drastic doesn't change in the next three years, they're closing the doors, 75%. So now, purpose-driven blew up. And now we've moved to a new model that was really started in California, uh, in uh, Seattle, Washington by a guy named Mark Driscoll, and it's the campus-driven model where you have a central mother church that has campuses scattered out. Everybody goes and watches, TV, uh, watches church on the TV, and it's really driven to be uh, people-centric so that when people walk in the door, they feel super welcome, and they have the music is oriented to that particular geographic location. All you've got to do is look at Mars Hill where that model was originated to see what the end result's going to be. Because when Mark Driscoll had a moral failure, that whole campus philosophy blew up. And so instead of having 2,000 people like you did in the purpose-driven church who were scattered to the winds, when Mars Hill blew up, you had around 20,000 people from Seattle, Washington, all the way to L.A. that were blown to the wind. It's not the model that God designed, so it's not going to work. It's built around one person celebrity. We've had four different times when churches have come to us and said, will you make us a campus of North Glencoe? And I say, no, that's not a biblical model. The model is that you have a pastor living amongst you who knows you, who can pray for you, who can love on you, and you see him as he is. You guys see me how it is. If you were here Sunday night, my son and my daughter got in a knockdown drag out because they're kids. And if you had been here, you would have seen me show my tail. Because I told my son, son, you have my name. How dare you stand back here and yell and scream and holler at her. And, ah! So I had to go back and apologize to my kids. And if you had been there, I would have had to apologize to you. So you get to see me fail. It's not pastoral pornography where all the mistakes are edited out and real life can't be seen. And so in the model that Paul is laying down here, you've got people among you who you can look at and see if they're sober-minded. Are they jerked down the path by every little fad that comes down the pike? Or are they somebody that sits down and explores God's Word and sees it? And you got to know somebody before you can answer that question. Sober-minded, self-controlled, which means just exactly what it sounds like. That that, that person has the ability to say, okay, I'm not going to freak out about this particular issue. They're self-controlled. They're respectable. That is similar in its structure to um, above reproach, but respectable has more to do with the arc of a life. Hospitable. That is something that our culture, we were talking about this Sunday, Don, our culture used to have that, that we seem to have lost. In Muslim culture, if someone strange or foreign or an outsider comes into their midst, that person is required to be cared for. And they're protected. Every village that I went to in Turkey, every night, not only did I spend the house in a a high-ranking person in that village's home, they gave me the best bed. They took probably a week's worth of their food and prepared it to feed me their very best. And they wanted to make sure that no shame was brought on their community. And almost always when I leave, they would walk me all the way to the edge of the village. The whole community would walk me out and say, stand there and say bye. It bothers me that when we have missionaries here, we put them in a hotel. I think we should put them in people's homes. That way you get to know them. When I was a kid, that's the way we did that. Now, I'm, clearly, since we put... I don't want to make the missionary uncomfortable and I don't want to make families uncomfortable. And... I used to be much more dogmatic about this, so much so that when I would speak, I would say, I'd rather not stay in a hotel, I'd like to just stay with the family. And then I was able to figure out that, A, I always got stuck with the poor pastor, and B, that family was uncomfortable because they weren't used to being hospitable. And so they were like, so why don't you like hotels? Um, and so I, I, I backed off of that some, but to be an elder, you have to not be somebody that closes in around me and mine. It's someone that's open to being hospitable. We, as a family, try to have somebody in our home to, to eat at least once a month. Try to try to have people over. Uh, right now, and there's a little girl who's a, an exchange student here from Kazakhstan that. I got reached out to the family that was keeping her, was not able to keep her anymore. And I said, I, we can't do it long-term because she's a 17-year-old girl and I have a 16-year-old son, and that's a bad mix. But in the short term, so that the, you know where to go, she can stay with me and we'll find someplace to put her. Um, we need to be hospitable. We need to be open to other people. Able to teach. That is one of the big differences between, if you look at the list and lay them out side by side between a deacon and an elder, one of the big differences is, that he's able to teach. Now again, that is a decision that that needs to be made by all y'all, not by that person. I, there's a lot of people who have told me that they're really good teachers and then when I heard them was like, oh, "I just I don't I don't know about that." And I could be self-deluding my I could be deluding myself and y'all are thinking the same thing right now. There's no way I could know. So that's why as a, as a congregation we make these decisions, but that person needs to be able to teach. And I, I, uh, as I was prepared for this, I was reading um, a book that was essentially saying that teaching is not a learned, either you can teach or you can't. I don't, I don't agree with that. In fact, I've had people that I've discipled in my life who are now pastors. And when we started the process, I, I remember them practice preaching and me sitting in, in the pulpit by myself thinking, we're never going to get past this. In fact, one of the best preachers that I ever discipled, the, I, I know I've shared it with you guys because it's a big highlight of my life. The very first sermon he preached was an hour and a half long. I didn't think he was ever going to shut up. And he was preaching out of Hebrews, and every 10 minutes he backed up. And before you know we were in the garden. He's telling the story of Adam and Eve. And I'm like, how did we get from Hebrews all the way to the garden? And now you've got to get us back to Hebrews. We're going to be here all night. Not a drunkard. That should be fairly clear. They can't be a drunk. Not violent, but gentle. Now, I will say... That is one of the requirements of an elder that is often overlooked. Because in our culture, we think that an alpha personality who's all up in everybody's face is the definition of a leader. And in the, in the original, this isn't suggesting necessarily that he just whoops everybody. We've all known somebody that leads by force. And I would say that my natural sin tendency lies in this area. I, for, as a, in my secular job, I had a really bad, the way that I led was either you do it the way that I'm doing or we'll find somebody who will. And that is not how the church is to be ran. God has called us to be shepherds, not cowboys. And there's a difference. And shepherding, I can tell you, is a lot harder. Because if I stand up in that pulpit and say, either y'all do it, do it, think and, and do it my way or hit the road, Jack. It wouldn't take long for me to be standing up there by myself. Shepherding, you have to be patient. You have to let people make mistakes, knowing they're going to make mistakes. But if I'm leading, and I'm, every time we have a, an elders meeting, we're screaming and hollering at each other, then there's a problem there. Not quarrelsome. Similar to the one that we just read, but quarrelsome means, they're, they're, and we've all met somebody that's always pulling for an argument. You can say the sky's blue and they're going to say, well, actually it appears blue because of the refraction of the light in the atmosphere. It's not actually blue. You're like, what are you talking about? Not a lover of money. And again, in my life, the two things that almost always destroy ministries are money, a violation of rule number 13, and sex, which would be a violation of rule number four, which is why in my personal life, I don't have any access to money. If any of you have ever tried to give me any money, I always say, hey, let's go. Let me show you how to drop it in the safe. Or I'll say, give it to him. I'm never going to have access to money. And that just protects me. It's not a temptation. And I will not be alone with a person of the opposite sex other than my wife. I've, I've laughed and laughed the last... Two years because everybody's calling that the Pence rule. And I'm like, I've had that rule for 20 years. Bunch of silly goats. <sighs> I don't know why I came up with goats. Anyway, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I have a couple of times been involved with church, yeah, yeah, because someone has had... Um, a teenager that went off the rails in one case. and In one case, it was about a 20-year-old girl who went off the rails and left the faith. And it seems to me that what this is suggesting is and what this is saying is, it doesn't mean that a pastor or an elder's children have to be perfect. Again, if that was the case, none of us could be elders. I think what it is saying is, though, they have to manage their household well. They have to care. So in one of those cases, the one that was the teenager, uh, the pastor's child was going off the rails and the pastor wasn't doing anything about it. And so... I felt like that he should be removed, he, that he had disqualified himself as in the pastoral role. In the case where it was a 20-year-old, that pastor was broken over that and was trying to do everything in his power to bring that girl back. In that case, he was managing. She's still her own person. He can't make her repent. And so the, each situation like that, I, I think, has to be looked at. But the, the main thing is, is that if a person can't control their own household, how are they supposed to handle the house of God? He cannot be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall in the condemnation of the the devil. And then finally, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. And so we have at the very beginning, by saying that he is above reproach, and at the end uh, that he's thought well of by outsiders, the way that that's normally portrayed is he has to be well thought of inside and outside of the church. That... If he's somebody that everybody in town knows that he's going to rip you off, he doesn't need to be an elder. He doesn't need to be a pastor. We're going to close. We're going to come to the the last points about how that actually looks. And then next week, we're going to talk about the idea of the plurality. Why do we at North Glencoe have multiple elders and not just a single elder model like First Baptist does? So we're going to talk through that. Let me close this in prayer, and then we'll ask if there's any questions. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your Word I pray, Lord, that you would enlighten us and open our hearts to what your word teaches. And I pray that you would use this body to further your word. In Jesus' name, amen.